We had somebody that passed out in the service, but she was conscious and walked out to meet with the EMTs. But I'm really excited to have you uh, hear from Eddie Kaufholtz. Eddie is somebody that I'm getting to know really well. Eddie and his wife, Brianne, moved to Gainesville last summer so that Brianne could begin law school. Um, Eddie is uh, known to some of our young families, the McCready's and the McDermott's particularly. And uh, Jody and I have actually known him for, and Brianne for uh, over a year now, so because of a mutual friends and weddings that we participated in. But Eddie is on staff with the International Justice Mission. He's not talking about IJM today, but I want you to know that IJM exists. International Justice Mission, uh, fighting to end slavery, modern-day slavery in our world, which, believe it or not, is a reality not just around the world, but even here in Gainesville. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is actually Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and so I'm so excited. Eddie's been on staff with a church in Orlando, which is where he was ordained, but uh, he's now on staff with IGM and has been drawn to our congregation. So, Eddie, thank you for coming and sharing the Word of God with us of today. So, yeah. Welcome. Yep. How are we doing? <laughs> is everybody okay? Can we, can we do this? Okay, I feel like we can do this together. Um, well, it is a, a privilege to be here. I usually sit right there with... Brianne and Eve and Lucy, and it is a privilege to be a part of this church and this congregation. We are in a season in the church uh, known as Epiphany, and this season will take us from now until, until Lent, when we begin to prepare our hearts and our minds for Easter. Epiphany started last week, and it will kind of take us through whenever Lent starts. I should have looked that up, but we don't know that, and I'm sure we will be informed as the time comes closer. The term epiphany actually means to show or to make known or to reveal. In Western churches, it remembers the coming of the wise men, bringing gifts to the Christ child, and in doing so, they were revealing Christ to the world. And so as we consider that, we take this time to reveal Christ to the, word, to the world. So this is the season of sharing Jesus. This is the season, though we do this all the time, but this is the season spe specifically where we think about moving outward. But before we tell the, the story of Jesus to others, and we'll talk about that, I'm curious how the story of Jesus was told to you. Did you have an epiphany moment? I, I did. Here's a little bit of my story. This is actually my second time in Gainesville. I moved here for the first time in 2000. I moved away from my home for the first time, and I came up here to do my undergraduate at the University of Florida. I met Brianne, my wife, at the University of Florida. We had our first date at Kanapaha Gardens, a public sub. It was very romantic. Um, and I actually came here to this church a few times when uh, it was actually the vineyard, and we came and we did Young Life here. I did Young Life, and there are some of my Young Life friends here, um, and Young Life was just a really big and is a big part of our life, and uh, we know the farmer family has deep Young Life roots. And Young Life is this incredible ministry. Their slogan is, and it's right there on the front of their website, it says, we invite kids to follow Christ, care for them regardless of their response, and change lives in the process. In short, Young Life loves kids where they are at. 
And these incredible Young Life leaders go into schools and go and hang out at soccer games and just are with kids. And they're not there to go and like proselytize. They are there just to be in relationship with these kids and to love them. And then this beautiful thing happens is that these kids over time start to maybe ask questions or be curious about this whole Christian faith thing. And these Young Life leaders are there to go and, and really wrestle through these questions with them. When I was at UF, I was a Young Life leader at Kanapaha Middle School, but when I was in high school, I was a Young Life kid. And it actually started, it was my last year in high school, my senior year in high school, and they, they needed a guitar player. And they asked me if I would come and play guitar. Now the truth is they didn't actually need a guitar player. They were trying to like bring kids there. And they knew that like, clearly I love being in front of people and like have no problem with it. And they knew that if they're like, oh, come and play like brown eyed girl or whatever at Young Life that I would show up. And they were right because I wanted to be a rock star. So I showed up and played music there and just really began to feel the love and support of these, of these leaders and really started to understand Young Life. I grew up in a home that wasn't particularly faith-filled. And while we went to church, I was always, I, I mean, I really always felt, I remember thinking this as a kid, that I was always on the outside of these Christian people. I was always outside of their beliefs, sort of looking in. I just didn't quite understand the idea of faith and justice and obedience and loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That just did not resonate with me. We were kind of, kind of a, well, we were kind of a selfish family. Our family was kind of all about us, and we were always looking inward. And we didn't have a sense of what it was like to look outward into the world. And I needed someone, something, someone, some relationship to invite me in, to show me what it meant. Enter Young Life. So I start going to Young Life, and this amazing week happened. It was the last week of school. On Thursday, uh, I got a, well, it's embarrassing, but why not? I got a regrettable tattoo. Uh, it's, I'm not going to show it to you, and it's not salacious, but it's on my arm, and it's a very late 90s tattoo, and it's so silly. And I got this tattoo, and uh, it was also my dad's birthday, so we can unpack the psychology of that together at another time. So I got this tattoo. <laughs> and then on Friday, my uh, last day, I graduated. I graduated from high school, and that night of my graduation, out with friends, celebrating, doing the thing, and my beeper goes off, because it was the late 90s, and check it, and because you know we always checked it like that, we looked right at it, and it was my mom, and of course I have to call her back because she's paying for the beeper, and so I call my mom back, and my mom is not a particularly like bold uh, person, she doesn't like make a lot of decisions, she just kind of rolls with it, but in this weird instance, I called her and she said, hey, your Young Life leader called, and he invited you to camp. And I knew he invited me to camp because I had been in, we were all being invited to camp constantly. And she's like, and I signed you up and I paid for you. And I, I was like, so in my head, cause I just graduated and whatever. I was like, fine. I mean, I just like, what do I care? Going to North Carolina, I'm going to hang out with some friends. And then she says, and the bus to North Carolina leaves tomorrow morning. So yay, mom, making a big decision. So I go home sort of like unaware, this is like crazy. So I go home. And she's already started to like fold some clothes and I didn't end up taking, it's an unimportant detail, but I just remember not using the clothes that she packed for me. So I packed my own bag and the next morning, day after I graduated from high school, I'm on my way to North Carolina. Now I walk in the bus, I only know a few people and I'm feeling a lot of anxiety because of course, who do you sit with? The bus is full and there was a guy named Chris there, Chris Van Siegman. And he was a Young Life leader. I had never met, with him, met him and he said, oh, hey, come sit with me. 
once again, being intentional about the relationship, I thought he just had an empty seat. He had saved a seat for me. He said, come sit with me. So we go up to North Carolina together, and we have this long bus ride up to North Carolina, and we laughed. I mean, that's all we did was we laughed and cut jokes the whole time. We didn't, sh- <laughs> we didn't share about our lives. We didn't talk about anything of substance. We just laughed and laughed. And if you know me, you know that's like the entry point to my soul. And Chris knew that and could feel that. And we just had this incredible experience laughing together. And then when I got to North Carolina, the campus called Windy Gap. When I got to North Carolina, uh, we just had this astonishing week. And there are some people here that are of like middle school or high school age. And so I'm not going to tell you all of the things that happen at a Young Life camp. But I will tell you it is this overwhelming experience where it's the most fun you could possibly have. It's the most laughter. It's just incredible accommodations. It's just this really beautiful place. There was a musician there that I loved. His name was Bebo, and he was playing music, and he taught me how to play one of his songs. And so once again, I felt like I was a rock star. I mean, it was all just blowing my mind. Um, In the evening at Young Life Camps, they do what's called a talk. And I don't remember the woman's name, but she was this great speaker. And they would give these talks. They were sermons, but they called them talks because sermon is too intimidating. They would give these talks. And in these talks, she would share just little tiny pieces every single day. And she would share about how much Jesus loves us. And she would share about how our sin and what sin is and how our sin doesn't separate us from the love of God. And in those woods in North Carolina, my heart was softened, just softened to the point where I was finally hearing for the first time that Jesus loved me. On June 10th of that year, Chris and I were walking around the camp, talking, chatting, conversations are getting a little bit deeper, and I start to ask him about these talks. And we end up having a really uh, pretty deep conversation, and then I had my epiphany. It came to me, and I realized she's talking to me. Jesus loves me. My sin does not separate me from God. And Chris just very gently, he's like, do you want to pray? And I was like, I do. And so we sat underneath an oak tree. It was so small at the time that it, we, when we sat on it, it leaned. And I'd love to go back there. I've never been back to Windy Gap. I bet it's a really big tree now that's really strong. But we sat there by this tree and we prayed together. And I knew in a moment, that was it. I love Jesus and Jesus loved me. And that's my story. And so I'm curious, I wish we could just see the rest of the time of the sermon and hear what your story is. How did you come to know that Jesus loved you for the very first time? My guess is, uh, knowing kind of statistically how it works, my guess is, is that when you think about how you came to an understanding of who Jesus is, my guess is that there is at least one person, a significant relationship, a person in your life that spoke into that. I know that a majority of the stories in this room, there is a person who is likely a very big factor in it. My person was Chris. There's a study out of Biola University, and what it says that, it says that more than anything, it's a close one-on-one relationship that leads people to know Jesus. More than hitting rock bottom in life, more than a loss, more than any circumstance, it it is knowing a person and having someone to talk to that brings us into deeper levels of faith. Relationships matter a great deal. Relationships thaw the ice that has, th- that has formed around our hearts, and it gives us clarity to hear the voice of God telling us what's true. People in our world help us to know that God loves us, and we get to help others know that.
And so in this epiphany time, where we are thinking about what this season means, and we so desperately want people to know Jesus, and we want them to have a genuine desire for all the things that come with understanding Jesus. We want them to understand that there is justice and mercy and humility. We want them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. We want them to understand how deeply they are valued, and we want those things so desperately, but also it's a little weird sometimes to talk about that with people. And it can be hard, and we don't want to be uncomfortable. Our coworkers, uh, you know, they, we don't know what they think when they hear that we're Christian. Like, what, what kind of, what bubble do they put us in? Or they think we're like one of those, like, really judgmentally kind of Christians. Are we, are we one of those types? Are they going to assume that we're, like, super far right or super far left? Are they going to think that we have some hidden agenda because we are people of faith? And so we kind of start to spiral in this worry about what people will think when we start to talk about Jesus and we end up just putting on the brakes and we're here just thinking about what it could be like instead of truly understanding how we can go and share the love of Jesus with the world. I feel this way a lot and I feel uncomfortable (laughs) a lot about sharing faith because it just feels like it puts a shine over me that makes me somehow less relatable to someone. Which is why this week's reading in scripture was super helpful to me, especially the reading in Acts. And I'm kind of a new Anglican, so I realize, you know, it's like cool because all of the scriptures go together. You, you all know this because you've been here. You're like, yeah, that's why they put them all together. But it's this incredible thing, right, where all of these scriptures really tie into each other. But I think Acts 10 that we read, and really we just heard the punchline of Acts 10, but I think Acts 10 really speaks to this idea of, of, of practically how we are to go and share our faith. And so I'm going to walk through all of Acts 10, one through the very end of it, because it's this incredible story between Peter and Cornelius, and they have an exchange that I believe helps us really understand the how of how we live out this season, this this life of epiphany, and how we tell others about Jesus. So I'm going to read it to you. You can read along if you want, but we'll read and talk a little bit. We're going to start chapter 10, verse 1, and we'll work our way through. Here we go, 10-1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those who were in need, and he prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear which I only snicker because every single time an angel shows up in the Bible, people are terrified. Yet we draw these angels with little horns and they're little soft babies with white. They're always scary. Every time a baby or an angel shows up, people are absolutely terrified. And Cornelius was terrified and he just is freaking out because someone just showed up in his room and he says, what is it? And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up, come as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back this man named Simon who's called Peter. So send people, bring back Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, different person, who is at his house by the sea. When the angel spoke to him at gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was with his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. That's the beginning of the story. 
And it's important to have a framework for who Cornelius is. He was a centurion. He was of the Italian regiment in Rome. At this point, Rome is really the center of the earth. It was the center of power. It was the center of all economy. It was the center of all thought. And Rome was to be feared. And Cornelius was a military officer in a very key strategic port. He had probably, and probably conservatively, a hundred people under his command. In short, Cornelius was a very big deal. And it's important to note that Cornelius was a Gentile. That is a non-Jewish born person. And, and, and before we go further in this, we have to draw the distinction between a Jew and a Gentile because it is the key to this story, right? Because the Jewish people, they were people from the tribe of Israel. They were God's chosen people. They were the people that we read about in the wanderings of the Old Testament who continue to understand what it means to follow God. Those were the people who were Jewish and the people who were Gentile were all the others. There was very much a sense at the time, even amongst really good people, and a reality that the Jewish people were God's chosen people, and the outliers were the Gentiles. And Cornelius is a Gentile. Cornelius was a person who was a Gentile who was not only a Gentile, but it was also someone who had relationships with people of the Jewish faith and clearly respected the Jewish tradition. And Cornelius was seeking after God. N.T. Wright the New Testament scholar says this about Cornelius. He says, Cornelius had his nose pressed to the glass and needed someone to tell him that he could come in. Cornelius needed something to happen, a person, a relationship, something to intervene to take his faith from an understanding and a basic understanding of who God is to a life spent following Jesus. So the terrifying angel intervenes and says, send some of your people to go pick up this guy named Peter. God did the work of hopping into Cornelius's story and showing him what to do. But Peter, the apostle, wasn't quite ready for Cornelius. The story continues. Peter's on a journey. He doesn't know he's heading towards Cornelius, but Cornelius is doing his thing, and Peter is on a journey, and he steps aside one time to pray. And the verse 11 goes like this. He said, he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It combined all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure and unclean. Remember, Peter is living under a strict series of laws. You can see them outlined in the book of Leviticus that were thousands of years old that prevented him from getting up and killing and eating. As a member of the tribe of Israel, and more salient to this point, not a Gentile, it was a deeply held cultural belief that, that he was not going to eat pork and a lot of other things. People that were Jewish didn't even sit and eat or go into the houses of people who were Gentiles. And so the voice speaks to him a second time, verse 12. Do not call anything impure that God has made. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Peter is sitting there, reeling, trying to figure out what this meant, and here's what it meant. It meant that because of Jesus, there was no more us and them. There was no more clean and unclean. There was only Jesus. And even though there had been generations upon generations of hate between these Jews and Gentiles, the chosen and the not chosen, it was done. And that's what the dream meant. 
But as Peter is sitting in this and considering all that, the Spirit of the Lord speaks to him one more time and says, hey, there are three people downstairs that have come to collect you. Go with them. This is where the stories of Cornelius and Peter intersect. Cornelius sent his men, and they're downstairs in the house. Peter has this vision and this reality, and they intersect, and they are here. And Cornelius' people come up to Peter, and they say, basically, Cornelius is an upright man, a man who loves and fears God, and Cornelius is a Gentile, and we need you to come meet with him. Peter does not know what's happening, but he knows well enough at that moment that it is time to get up. And this is the key point. Peter is the giant of the church. Jesus renamed him Peter, which means rock. Peter was to be the rock on which the church was built. Peter was the first apostle to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. He gave up his life as a fisherman to lead others by becoming fishers, a fisher of men. He was a witness to the transfiguration when Jesus was revealed to be God's son. He saw Jesus bring a dead child to life, and he was an eyewitness to Jesus's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. This Peter is standing there at this moment, and the reality of him in this moment of the story is that Peter is a very prejudiced person. Peter, even though he knew more than anyone probably ever of all time because he was friends with Jesus, though he knew and understood who Jesus is, he still had to be metaphorically slapped across the head in a dream that told him that the message of Jesus was not for the Jews, but it was for all people of all nations, for all Gentiles, even Cornelius, and even you and me. So Peter, taking that little bit that he knew, goes to Cornelius. And when we read the story, and we read it at face value, and we just kind of zip through Acts 10, we think like, oh, Peter is an apostle, he's going to go and convert Cornelius, which is true. But the key of this story, and what's key for us today, is that this is about a two-way relationship. Yes, Cornelius needs Peter, but Peter really needs Cornelius. Peter needs to be taught a critical lesson that there is no us in them. God loves every single person on this earth, and Jesus died for every single one of them. And if Jesus is going to be known, if Peter is actually going to go and build that church, he's going to have to know that. If this church, the church in our world, is going to be built, we have to know that. So here's how the fateful meeting between the two of them go. Here's how it works out between Peter and Cornelius. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell on his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, and he just said to him, Stand up. I'm only a man myself. This is the confluence of all belief happening in a single sentence and a half, right? Cornelius is just so hungry to know God that when he sees somebody that does, he doesn't know what to do, and he just worships a guy. He just worships him. And Peter, right? Peter is conflicted, to say the least. He is in the home, first of all, he just walked in the home of a Gentile. That's a thing he doesn't do. The vision that was planted in his brain continues, and the generations of vitriol against the Gentiles and the superiority of the Jews is at war in his psyche. And the verse continues. We're 27 now. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. So Peter goes inside this house, finds a large gathering. By the way, they're all Gentiles. So now he's in a Gentile home with only Gentile people. And Peter, Peter says to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. 
So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And the scripture didn't say this, but you can feel the moment. Like you just know it's quiet because there's Cornelius and all his friends. And I can just see Cornelius coming out of the group of his friends and standing in front of Peter. He looks at Peter and he says, I'm the one that sent for you. An angel appeared to me and said, I had to find you. And they're both standing there at the doorstep of a huge decision. Peter has his entire history, the history of generations sitting on his shoulder, making him question what he should be doing in this point. Yet he also has this vision and Cornelius wants to know God so badly and they're standing here. And what happens? That brings us back to the scripture today. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth. It's such an unnecessary detail. It's like, right, opened his mouth and said. We don't need to write that. Peter just said he said. But there is a decision by Peter to open up his mouth. And sometimes I think that that was the only thing Peter knew to do. Just say something. And I'm not even sure that he knew in this moment what he was about to say. But he opened his mouth and here's what he said. Verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace throughout Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. And then Peter continues. He continues to lay out very simply, and it's only a paragraph, and it's not that beautiful. He just lays out very simply the truth of who Jesus is, and he ends by saying this in the Gentile home to the group of Gentiles, to Cornelius. He says, everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him and receives, forgive, uh, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And what happens? when Peter is brave enough to speak and Cornelius and his Gentile friends hear about it. Even while Peter spoke, the Holy Spirit fell down on those who finally heard the truth and Cornelius and his friends were overwhelmed with the presence of God. And Peter, who now fully understood the vision, called for them to be baptized. It's worth noting at the end of the day and at the climax of the story, Peter didn't convert anyone. The Holy Spirit came down and changed the hearts of the people. All Peter did, and it was a big deal, but all Peter did was show up at the right place at the right time, and he fought through his own junk to be in a relationship with Cornelius. We don't change hearts. God changes hearts. We aren't anyone's savior. Jesus is the savior. We are simply conduits of his love and his grace in the world. And people get to watch as Jesus moves throughout our midst. When we think about what it means to be in a season of epiphany together, I hope that we consider this story of Cornelius and Peter. Because seeing how God orchestrates this, how God in a very practical way brings Cornelius and Peter together is a roadmap for us. Because first... Peter and Cornelius needed each other. That's the first thing to realize when we are sharing the truth of Jesus, that this isn't you coming in with some sort of 
relationship in order to convert a non-believer. This isn't about you coming in and being an expert on their life and exporting to them that which will save them. It's about you loving them and it's about you seeing the inherent value in them and it's about realizing that God cares for them and it's about learning from them and it's about allowing yourself to be vulnerable and humble and teachable and to be in this relationship without an agenda of conversion but with the agenda of being the best embodiment of the love of Jesus that we can possibly be. Even when we look at Peter, Peter, even when we look at what was happening, he was not on his way to visit Cornelius to convert him. He was there just to be there, just to sit with him and to be with him. And out of that, God got to work. It is about honest two-way relationships and trusting the outcomes to God. Yet having said that, it does require that we show up. And it does require that we be a little bit brave because Peter could have ignored God's prompting and never showed up in the first time. Like how easy would it have been to just say like, no, nah, I'm not going to go with you. I, I had a vision. I don't really understand what it means. I'm just going to stay here. He could have done that. And furthermore, Peter could have never opened his mouth and spoken a single word. And the fruit of that relationship, that moment would have been lost forever. We probably wouldn't even be reading about it today. But Peter didn't ignore the urge. And he made himself available. And he was intentional about pursuing the situation that was outside of his plan. Similarly, I think it is incredibly important for us to ask ourselves, as we desire to share our faith, who are the people in our spheres of influence that we can just love better? Furthermore, do we even have a relationship with anyone in our world that is not a Christian? This is an honest question that I'm asking myself too. Do we actually know anybody that isn't a believer? right? Who is God putting in our path? How are we knowing people? What people might we miss just because people come in and out of our lives? Chris, my young life leader that I share with you at the beginning, we met each other on a Saturday. On Thursday, we were praying together under that oak tree. People flow in and out of our worlds, and every single person matters. And each person is an opportunity not to put some mark on a heavenly scorecard, but it's an opportunity to show what is true, and to share with them, just like Young Life says, that we care for them regardless of their response, and we change lives in the process. Which leads me to the last point. If we show up and lovingly desire to be in, our relationship, in a relationship, we can trust the Holy Spirit to work. God is smarter and faster and more brave than anybody in this room. But one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith is that God chooses to work through us. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his typically snarky tone. He said, God commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly in the twinkling of an eye. God, in his great wisdom and grace, has seen fit to allow us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world and to bring the truth and love of Jesus into our relationships. In this season of Epiphany, bring cookies to a friend. Just sit at the hospital. Just go and sit there. Go on a walk with your kid and just chat after school. Become a Young Life leader. Introduce yourself to someone at the office who you've never met before. And know that like Peter and Cornelius, God is orchestrating something beautiful out of our very meager yet very heartfelt efforts. Your story, my story, the story of this church was made because somebody just cared for you. I'm glad that we are a church that cares for others 
and leans in hard during this epiphany season and during every season. Let's pray. Father, it is with great gratitude that we approach this epiphany season grateful that you love us and care for us and grateful that we have something to share. And God, I just pray that you would give us wisdom to look for people in our world who we can just be in a good relationship with, who we can know and allow ourselves to be known. And I pray that you give us wisdom that when it is time to open our mouth and speak, you would help us to know what to say. God, I also pray for people in this room who uh, may not know how much you love them. I pray that they just know today, in this moment, that they are at the right place at the right time, and they are amongst friends. Lord, we love you and we are grateful. Amen.